0: Good morning from kind of cloudy Panama. We're going to have a great day today. We're going to church in Esperanza. And then tonight there's a district event that I'm preaching at. But tomorrow is when the real fun begins. We're going to four different locations this week. Tomorrow we'll be at a school. Tuesday we're going to be at a community center. Wednesday we're going to be at a police station. And Thursday we're going to our very first location when we started coming to Panama. The Samaria Church of the Nazarene. We'll be home on, on Saturday, and I'll be with you next Sunday. It's going to be a great week. Please pray for us. And if you ever think about coming to Panama, I wish you would. We need people coming in our June trip and our August medical trip like this trip is going to be. So please think about coming. Pray for us this week. Have a great Sunday at Central Church. Well, good morning, and welcome to Central Church of the Nazarene today. Good morning, good morning. It's the, sec, it's the Sunday after Easter, which is generally the lowest attended Sunday of the year, but you're here. And so that's big. This must be a room full of saints today that we're looking at. I love this, yes. Well, my name is Joey Wood. I am the pastor to the middle school students and their families here at Flint Central Church of the Nazarene. And I am so excited to share with you this morning what God's laid on my heart For those of you who don't know me, I work with the middle school students here, but we have an amazing team of volunteers that I get to work with each week. There are 16 adults who come, and they work with our middle school students, and they find joy in the awkward, and they are just amazing, and I get to work with them. Um, One of them is kind of my favorite. If I had to pick one, one of them's my favorite, and we'll be celebrating our ninth anniversary next month. So My wife, Stephanie, I get to work with her. It's so amazing to get to work with her in ministry. And we have two young children. We have uh, Owen and Elise. They're five and three, and they are full of life. Their personalities could seriously fill this entire auditorium. They are just, they love life. They love life and they love, they have so much energy. And you know I may be partial, but I think they're the best kids in the world, I don't know. You probably think that too about your kids, but I I think that about mine. And even when we think that about our children, even when we think that they're the best, parenting is hard. It is a hard work that we are called to do as as parents. And one of the biggest tasks that I think is, oh man, it can be the most difficult, is trying to get a three-year-old and a five-year-old into bed on time and get them well rested for the next day. It can be an almost impossible task. It doesn't matter if you do everything right. If you follow the entire routine, if you follow every parenting email that you get, or if you're a grandparent and you have them for the night, you follow everything that their parents routine that they have set up, it doesn't matter. If they don't wanna go to bed, they're not gonna go to bed. And I remember a couple years ago, Owen was about three years old and, and Owen is definitely my most vivacious child to say the least. If you've ever met Owen, you've met Owen because he's probably yelled at you from across the way, hi. And so this night, this little three-year-old boy, he would not calm down. He was just like a race car running around the house. We could not get him to lower down his gears to go to sleep. And I had done everything right. We had done the bath time. We had done the book, another book, another book. Another book and another book, and still he would not calm down. There was nothing that I could do. And so I was getting to that point, parents, you know this point, I was about to lose it. There was about to be a shift in our household and I I felt myself getting to that place, but I couldn't stop, I couldn't stop it. And all of a sudden, what came next does not paint me in the most positive light. But what I said next was I said, Owen, if you don't go to bed, there's a monster. And it's gonna come out of the attic and it's gonna eat you if you don't go to bed right now. That was a bad mistake. That was awful. This three year old who had trusted me to get him to bed safely, to protect him from the monsters in the attic, I had just broken that trust and he just fell apart into a puddle of emotions on the floor. And I felt so bad. I tried to regain his trust. I tried to, I said, buddy, please forgive me. I'm so sorry. No, daddy's crazy. I I was tired. I'm so sorry. I made that up, but he wasn't having it. And he just wouldn't calm down. That trust that we had was broken. And so eventually my wife had to come in and calm him down and finish the routine and put him to bed. Have you ever broken someone's trust? Have you ever experienced this? It's hard to regain somebody's trust after we have broken it. Um, You do something to break someone's trust and then you try to immediately backpedal, right? You try to do something to ask for forgiveness, to do something to offset what you have done, but it just never seems to work. And those things that we do, they're usually out of guilt and shame. And sometimes that person knows that. And a lot of times it just doesn't work in regaining that person's trust. And so we just maybe give up on that relationship or stop trying. Maybe you've been on the other side of it. Maybe somebody's broken their trust with you. And it brings up all these emotions and thoughts inside of you like, can I ever trust this person again? That will never happen again to me. I guarantee it. Is it possible for me to love them ever again? Here's the thing. We know that in our human nature, we desire to have relationships with other people. We desire to be around a people. It's part of who we are as humans. It's part of who God has created us to be, to want to be with other people. We, there's this part of us that desires relationship, community, kinship, fellowship with one another, intimacy, whatever you wanna call it, a closeness we desire to have with one another. And there's actually been studies that have, been done that have looked at what does it look like when someone is totally isolated from people. And they found that it is detrimental to our health. There's a famous study done by Peter Smith. He published in the University of Chicago Press Journals. And the name of his study was The Effects of Solitary Confinement on Prison Inmates. And in the abstract, which is the part that kind of sums up this, this journal article, he said this the weight of the modern evidence is conclusive. Whether and how isolation damages people depends on the duration and the circumstances and the individual's characteristics. But for many prisoners, the adverse effects are substantial. And so we know, we know this to be true that we, we need other people in our lives. We need to be around other people and extended periods of time where we're away from them is detrimental to our health. Some people even report seeing things, actually seeing other people who aren't there and their mind will conjure up this apparition or this ghost or somebody that they will talk to. And a, a famous example of this is in 1933, Frank Smith. He's a British explorer who wanted to summit Mount Everest solo. And so he climbs the mountain and as he's getting closer and closer to the top, he becomes delirious and he becomes uh, sad, missing his family and friends. And he turns over and offers his food to somebody who's not even there. In 1895, Joshua Slocum, the first man to circumnavigate the globe all by himself in a sailboat, reported that at the end of that journey, he said, there was a time where I was so sick that I couldn't even get up off the deck of the ship and Christopher Columbus's captain steered my ship through the storm. Somebody that hadn't been alive for over 100 years, he claimed to see them. And our minds are incredible. They're incredible how they will come up with these images when we desire connection with people. But to have that connection with people, we have to have something. We have to have trust. And what happens when that trust is broken with somebody? There's a disconnection that happens inside of us. It's almost a physical disconnection that we can feel, it's palatable. We, can, we sense that disconnection when, when trust is lost between us and someone else. Something that was once whole is now destroyed. And that loss, it makes us have all of these, these thoughts and feelings, how can I ever trust them again? Why would I put myself out there if I'm only gonna be hurt again? And well, forget them, that will never happen to me again. How could they do this? How could I ever trust them? What are we supposed to do from here? How do we walk forward from here? We live in this, this tension of, we know we need other people and we know we need to trust them, but how do we get past the pain of the hurt and the broken trust? One of the most challenging teachings that Jesus has for us comes in Matthew chapter five. He says this, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But how? How, Jesus? How are we supposed to mend these relationships? What do we do when we're faced with the realization that we need other people, but at the same time have to get past these hurts that have happened? And for those of us who call ourselves Christians, we're even called to go a step further, right? We're called to forgive those who have hurt us. But how? How do we begin to put our hearts in the place where the Holy Spirit can work on us and to where we can walk towards wholeness in those relationships? And to complicate things, trust isn't this cut and dry thing. It's not like, oh, you did this, so now I never trust you again. Usually it's a storied past and there's a history behind trust lost and trust gained and trust lost again. And so it becomes increasingly difficult for us to forgive those with us How do we begin to walk towards wholeness in those situations? I'll never forget the time that um, my wife and I were in our new apartment and my mother-in-law came and visited us for the first time. And uh, as we were sitting there, we were watching this TV show and all of a sudden my wife and I, we looked over to my mother-in-law and she was just sobbing. She was crying. And my wife was no doubt concerned. So she leaned over and she asked her, she said, "What's, what's going on? And through her pain and through her tears, my mother-in-law began to share a story, a story of abuse, a story of a cousin who had sexually abused her at a young age. And for the first time in her life, she was giving words to that pain. And she went on to tell us that not only is this the first time that she's saying this, but that person was at our wedding and decided to confront her there. And so over the next days, weeks, months, my mother-in-law, as she would share this story with family and close friends and eventually a counselor, she would say that each time she shared her story, it it was as if the pain was there all over again and as if she was reliving it. And the pain that I saw my mother-in-law and my father-in-law walk through in those days, it was devastating. Kids at Risk is a foundation that supports people, projects, and policies for children who have been neglected and abused. And they have some statistics that I think we need to know. One in four girls and one in six boys will be sexually abused before they're 18 years old. And they say that 90% of victims know who their abuser is. It's not somebody who they don't know. It's not a stranger in a trench coat, somebody off the street. It's somebody that they know. And I think it's important for us to say today, if that's you, if that's a part of your story and that's, that's you today, I wanna say I am so sorry. That is not what God wants for you in your life. And I wanna tell you that you are not alone that when you're ready, there are people who are ready to hear your story and want to help you. And maybe you're saying today, Pastor Joey, I've already shared my story and nobody believed me. Share it again. Share it with somebody that you know you trust and love. How do we even begin to talk about forgiveness and regaining trust in these dark, dark circumstances? Even in the worst times of our lives, how can we begin to talk about gaining trust and forgiveness. I think today's scripture is going to help us. I think it's going to be able to help us answer some of these questions. The disciples who followed Jesus, they were no doubt feeling a sense of loss and trust among themselves. I mean, not to mention Judas who had turned Jesus over to the authorities to be arrested, but also Peter, one of the disciples who Jesus loved, he ended up denying Jesus three times And not to mention how many of the disciples we don't really hear about through the passion story because they've ran and they've hid. And so no doubt there's loss of trust and and loss of forgiveness between them. And so in today's passage, we find Jesus, uh, in the gospel of John, it begins right after Jesus has been risen from the dead and he appears to Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene runs and tells the others of what she's seen. And a funny thing happens here in Jerusalem. Here's what the writer of John picks up and says in John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So we see Jesus appearing to his disciples, and the first thing he says to them is, peace be with you. And he says it twice. And generally in the Bible, anytime you see something repeated over and over again like that, the writer's trying to tell us something. And so we should slow down, take pause, and listen in to what the writer's trying to tell us. And I think what John is pointing at here is just to the fear that the disciples were living in at that time. They were fearful that their own lives would be taken by the same people who had taken Jesus's life. And so Jesus appears and the first thing he says is, peace be with you, peace be with you. But then something amazing happens next here in the text. Jesus says he breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now this idea of breath, it's not something that we can just pass by. It's something that's very significant in the Bible. In the Bible, breath represents God's personal presence with us. And it's Jesus literally giving them the very energy and presence of God. And Jesus had promised this to the disciples earlier in John. If you remember, chapter 14, he says this, verse 16, and I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. And so the disciples, they're they're awakening to this fact that the very spirit of God is now living inside of them. The same spirit that was in Jesus, the same spirit that they had learned about through the scriptures, the same spirit that they saw in the Old Testament, in the old scriptures of bringing their ancestors out of Egypt, that same spirit is with them. The same Spirit that was at the foundations of the world, the one that we read about in Genesis chapter one, verse two. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless, empty. D- darkness was over the spirit of the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Even at the beginning that's the spirit that they're receiving. This is an incredible thing that Jesus is announcing to the disciples. God's spirit, the the one that created the world is now living inside of them. The very words that called order out of chaos is now living with them and being given to them. And this idea of breath representing the Holy Spirit, it's not a new concept, right? Because not only do we see it throughout scripture, but we see it at another place in the Genesis story at the beginning. We see it when God creates humans in his own image. And what does he do to animate that life? He breathes the breath of life into them, the spirit of God moment in a new way through the love Jesus. That's what they're receiving. Verse 23, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So Jesus is calling them to something. He's calling them to be the ones who forgive sins. He's calling them to be the ones who give freedom to the world through the forgiveness of sins enabled by the very spirit of God that created everything. Jesus is calling them to participate in a new creative work that is going to be done in the world. Their lives are now gonna be the representation of God's spirit everywhere they are. Jesus' disciples are gonna be the ones in which the way God's spirit is shared throughout the world. One commentator said this, that after Jesus' ascension, no longer would Jesus' story be shared by eyewitness testimony, but what it would be shared by is the spirit of God in the words of his disciples. Jesus has done this throughout his entire ministry, and now he is passing this on to the disciples to carry out the work in the world. When we decide to live in the way of Christ, we take on that spirit. We take on the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ lives in us and through us, and we are called to do the same, to begin to share that Spirit of Christ with everyone we meet. God is calling us to participate in the forgiveness of sins just as he was calling the disciples back then. And it's through God's Spirit that we're able to accomplish this, that we're able to forgive those who have harmed us. It's the Spirit of God living in us that enables us to live this out every day in our lives. God is calling us to live out the forgiveness of sins in our lives and to forgive the sins of others. And as he promised, we will not do it alone. Praise God. God's spirit makes it possible for us to forgive the sins of others. Some of you today might be sitting here and thinking of someone that you have lost trust with, that you might need to walk towards steps of forgiveness with. And I wanna encourage you today by saying, you're not alone. And that God's spirit is not only with us today, but it walks with you every day. My mother-in-law began the hard work of healing and walking towards restoration and counseling and therapy. And one of the things that her counselor, one of the practices that, that her counselor encouraged her to do was to write a letter to her abuser. And so she said it took her two weeks to even pen that letter, but it took her another three weeks to mail it. And when she mailed that letter to her cousin, he received it and a series of events took place, but eventually he shared it with his brother. And this is what his brother had to say about that letter. That was truly a love letter. It was pouring out God's love in words. And I talked to my mother-in-law this week and, and I, I asked her, you know, what, what were you trying to convey in that letter? She said, I wanted him to know that I was okay and that I forgave him and that I hoped that he would find the love of Christ in his life. That is one of the most powerful stories of forgiveness I've ever witnessed in my life. But I am by no means saying that forgiveness is something that's trite and easy to do. My mother-in-law were standing right here today. She would tell you that this is one of the hardest things she's ever done in her life. And so today I'm not saying that forgiveness is easy I, and something that we can just do one time and it's done. And maybe instead of thinking as in forgiveness as something that we master, what if we thought about forgiveness in the way as something that we practice? Something that we practice every day in our lives by the way that we live. One of those steps that we can take to living in the way of forgiveness is to name the hurt, name the pain. It helps just um, to get those words out, either on paper or in your mind, to bring this thing that is intangible down to something that is tangible, to name the hurt. Something happens when we give words to our pain. The second thing is this, to say the words, I forgive you. And maybe you're sitting here today saying, Pastor Joey, I can't say I forgive you to that person anymore, that's okay. Because saying the words, I forgive you, I believe the Holy Spirit is there to help us just as it helped the disciples back then. The Holy Spirit is here with us now and will help us to forgive. And then for some of us, we have to repeat that. We have to repeat that process over again, name it and then say it. I was at a youth conference where a youth pastor shared a story about his family. And he said his mother had mistreated them horribly when they were growing up. Their mother would on occasion leave them at home often leave them at home their younger brothers and sisters all by themselves to fend for themselves at night no food in the house and he said i grew up with a bitterness in my heart towards my mother and i and i couldn't forgive her for what she had done and he said what i did was one day the holy spirit just got a hold of me and i decided to forgive her and i did And he said, I was hoping that it would be this joyful thing where all all of this forgiveness would just burst through in my life and it would all be over. But he said, it didn't. It did bring relief, but in that moment, he said, I felt relief, but he said, I had to continue to go back and say, every time I thought of her, to forgive her again. And sometimes that's true for us. We have to continue to forgive. We have to continue to practice the way of forgiveness in our lives. My prayer for us here at Central is that we would be people who forgive. My prayer for you today is that we would be people who live in the way of forgiveness. That when we feel prompted by the Holy Spirit, that we would walk towards wholeness and mend those relationships that have been broken. And we can do that because the very spirit that created the entire universe lives in us. And today, we get to celebrate with someone who has said publicly, I want to confess that Jesus is my Lord and Savior and live in the way of forgiveness. This is Matthew Wong. Uh, he's a senior at Grand Blanc High School, and he's just a remarkable, uh, remarkable man. So it's an honor to be here today with him. All right, Matthew. All right. Do you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and do you realize that he saves you now? I do. Do you put your whole trust in Jesus' grace and love? Will you seek to follow his will and keep his commands, walking in them all the days of your life? I do. Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, receive the grace and healing of our Lord Jesus Christ, and may the power of the Holy Spirit work within you, as I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Would you welcome the newly baptized? That's awesome, isn't it? That's great. I'm so thankful to be in a place where um, we celebrate these things on occasion. And I love the, the thought of how we can die to our sins, but we rise with new life through Christ. Today, receive the spirit of God and live in the way of forgiveness, live in the way of hope, and live in the way of God's love. May God's love be with you. May the presence of Christ be with you. May the Holy Spirit be with you throughout this week. Have a good week.